This event was recorded live at the 2013 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome everyone to the Frederick Hood Memorial event supported by Walter Scott and Partners. The aim of the event is which was inaugurated last year by the journalist John McCarthy, is to explore how a leading individual has overcome major challenges to forge a successful career. Someone who's inspirational and who's had a few setbacks along the way. Frederick Hood, whose life inspired this great event, was one of the founders of the Underbelly in Edinburgh, which was such a brilliant invention. And his work in Sir Walter Scott with Walter Scott Partners ensured him a bright future. He was in his 20s, though, when he died suddenly in 2008, when he was with friends skiing in Austria and was hit by an avalanche. And Walter Scott, in order to uh, remember him and his joie de vivre and everything that he loved so much about the festival, decided to inaugurate uh, the Frederick Hood uh, Prize. So we are delighted um, that, to discuss her life here in the vein <laughs> of the idea of the event, is one of the most prominent scientists in the United Kingdom. Baroness Susan Greenfield, CBE, has risen to great heights in the field of neuroscientific research, a world largely still dominated by men. She is also a writer, a broadcaster, and a member of the House of Lords. She's a professor of pharmacology at Oxford University. Professor Greenfield researches the impact of 21st century technologies on the mind, how the brain generates consciousness, and novel approaches to neurodegenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. She's also published her first fiction, 2121. I'm going to be interviewing Susan Greenfield. I'm going to be taking questions from the audience. But first, Susan in her own words for a few minutes. Thank you. Okay, good evening, everyone. Okay. And thank you, Chris, for that introduction. We just thought it might be sensible if I sort of lay out my stool just for about five minutes because I'm sure many people might have many different perceptions, many different types of questions. Um, but perhaps it might be easier if I just sort of scope out things that I find particularly relevant and interesting. So very briefly, if you like, I think areas that I'm particularly sensitive to slash proud of um, slash interested in is coming from a, an essentially a working class background and going up to Oxford, but having been nonetheless to a, a middle-class school and all the sort of conflicts culturally uh, that that involved, um, coming from a half-Jewish, half-Christian background. My dad was Jewish, my mum uh, was not. Um, for those of you who come from that kind of cultural tectonic plaques, you'll know what that's like, so I'm very happy to talk about those things as well. Um, I was a child of the 60s, and I think that was a very formative time, certainly being born in London in what was called Swinging London. Probably very few people would recognize that phrase now, but it was, um, it was the epicenter of the universe. And I was fortunate enough to be at school in swinging London. And um, so to investigate shops like Bieber's, for example, if that means anything to anyone. Yeah. We, yeah. All we could have up here was the yeah. catalogue. No, yeah, you go. <laughs> and the days before the internet. Um, formative influences, Bob Dylan, sitting around nodding one's head. Can sagely. I just stop you for a second? Yeah, what is that noise? Are we having some kind of intergalactic interference in here? What is it? I'm thinking you're recording this. This is making a very strange noise. Gone off. Thank okay. you. So there we were with Bob Dylan. Yep. Yeah. Um, 
And then going up, uh, going up to Oxford um, at a time when there was only five women's colleges and therefore being in a minority. Um, another area was having done Latin, Greek, ancient history and maths at A-level, um, then graduating uh, through philosophy to psychology and then on to brain sciences, um, even though I didn't have any O-level sciences at all. So that was, you might want to talk about how that happens, how you can be a medical tutor at Oxford with now chemistry O-level, interesting thing. Um, and then um, choosing to do research and why I chose research and the thrills and spills of doing science research. And I don't mind at all talking about what it means from the female perspective because I think that is the elephant in the room and we can't ignore yeah, that and pretend yeah. everything's just fine. It's not. Um, and then the issues of the actual research, such as how the brain generates consciousness, the work we're doing on Alzheimer's disease, and then um, the work I'm doing on what I call mind change, where I draw analogies with climate change in terms of the impact of technology on the brain and how it's comparable to climate change and that it's multifaceted, controversial, um, and, uh, unprecedented, um, and therefore I think it's rather similar to uh, mind change, if you like, mm. and global, of course. So it's sort of concepts we can talk about as well. So I'm sure we'll have more than enough to talk about. I think we've got But um, is that enough? Or, or we could talk about my mum, who's 86 and has taken up line dancing three times a week. And, <laughs> has also, and she wants to hear because she's also written a book now about her life. So perhaps Fantastic. one day she'll be sitting but here. But let, so. let's, just, let's just go right back to the yeah. beginning because here you were in London in the 60s, mm. uh, working class going to middle class school. I mean, I have friends now who've been in Oxford recently as working class uh, young men and women and mm -hmm. still feel strange being at Oxford. Sure. So was it super strange then or because you were exotic because you were a young woman? Okay, I think there's three, there's three issues there. Um, one is that although we were poor, because I came from a partly Jewish culture, you may be aware that Jewish culture, rather similar to, I think, Asian cultures a lot now, have a great respect for education, mm -hmm. a great... Well, that's not to say other cultures don't, of course, but you know, it used to be, ah, oh, here's 10 shillings for getting a good score report from my granny and things. And your score report would be passed around the extended family, you know? So even though, <laughs> even though one, you got an A minus for Jim, what is this? A failure, yeah. you know? Oh um, my God, so, the pressure. Yeah, so. so um, but did you feel pressure? So, so in that sense, I want to say that I can't pretend I was suddenly this working class heroine. I wasn't. I came from a background mm. where. Uh, reading was respected, mm. where we used to play chess, my family, my mum and dad and I used to play chess before my brother was born. Certain kind of brain for chess. Yeah, so therefore, and I used to live in the library, so I can't pretend I was in a, an environment mm. where I was discouraged. And I remember coming home and saying to my mum, I've decided to change to Greek A-level. And she said, oh, that's nice, dear, you know, fine. <laughs> yes. And it was a great advantage because... But was it expected, you were saying in Jewish culture particularly, was it expected, expected Was it expected to have a respect for scholarship and academia, yeah. but at the same time, unlike a lot of middle-class families, I wasn't being pushed from swimming club to this club to extramural in that and extra lessons in this because my parents couldn't afford it. So I was allowed to dream and to wander and to go at my own pace. And, and and just, you said very briefly thing. there that you lived in libraries. I mean, mm. I think all, I mean, I'm just four years younger than you. I think all of us at that stage yeah. lived in libraries. Yeah, and I remember seeing when I went, finally graduated to the adult library when I was a teenager. And I know this sounds a geeky, but just seeing this economics and oceanography, and I didn't know what these things were, but it just looked so exciting. Well, not the joy of things. sex. And no, exactly. Uh, no, we didn't know that. No, but, you know, no, we did read Lady Chatterley's Lover. That yeah, was, yeah selected. Old, that was yes. At that time, it was just being unleashed, Lady Chatterley's Lover. And I think that's so uh, here you are, you go to Oxford. So I go to Oxford. So, so first of all, I've been to a very good school in London, yep. so, often, so I can't pretend this was all alien to yep. me. 
And um, also, I think because um, the, you, there was an eight to one ratio, yep. um, it, you were very kind of hmm. looked after. It was men 10 shillings, women free for discos, for example. That was a great advantage. Um, but also, and I will say this, and I think this still endures at Oxford, trumping everything, despite the bride's head image and mm. so on, trumping everything is if you are an individual and you enjoy it, you do that. It always makes me want to tear up now thinking, that is what's encouraged. Yeah. You know? And I used to say to, when I in turn was a tutor, and I'd have these kids who were bright at school, and they'd say, you know, their tutorial partner was as cleverer than them, and this was a great identity crisis. I'd always say, no, there'll always be people, prettier, younger, thinner, fatter, cleverer, whatever, than you are, but you've got one rival, and that's yourself last week. So why compare yourself with other people? You stretch yourself to yeah. your forward. And that was something Oxford taught well, me very early on. Uh, it's interesting to develop the that. individual. Absolutely. You know? It's funny because um, I remember hearing Ariana Huffington talk mm. about um, this idea of development. And it wasn't another person, but it was, it was the other her on her shoulder saying, yeah. God, I don't think you can really do this. I mean, there's terrible yeah. doubt. You never had doubt. She didn't doubt. have Jewish parents. No, no, no. no. Mm, so, no, no, no. so there's um, no, no doubt. No, no, no. no. no well, also, well, I say that about my Jewish father, but my mum was a dancer. She'd been to my school and ran away. She was a scholarship girl at my school and then ran away and went on the stage. And uh, she had very much a theatrical mentality of getting through and the show must go on and just having sheer fun. So in the war, she was um, entertaining the troops and she sort of toured and so on. So with that very optimistic mentality, yeah. no one ever said you can't do something. You know, so, there was just this wonderful feeling of love and support. So my great break was being born working class but with loving parents. You know, it was a wonderful combination to have. And at uh, Oxford, I mean, do you remember a particular inspirational te teacher or tutor or fellow yes. that guided you towards science yes, and I've philosophy? Yes, I've had two. I've had two. One was Jane Mellonby, who was my tutor at St. Hilda's. And she it was who, when I was just thrashing around, I really didn't know what I wanted to do in my third year. She said, I think it'd be a laugh if you're a scientist. Ha, ha, ha. You know, and that was the attitude, this rather gifted amateur attitude. And I went to see the professor of pharmacology, Professor Payton, and, and he said to me, those of you who are scientists will know how banal this question is. He said, so do you know what a millimolar solution is? That is the science equivalent of saying, have you heard of someone called Shakespeare? It's like that. Yeah? And I said, um, frankly, no. No, I don't know what it is. You know? And he said, well, you can tell us about Homer in the coffee breaks. You know? He was a wonderful man who put a premium on motivation and enthusiasm. That's something I've tried to employ myself. So in those days, perhaps it would be less the case now, there was always an emphasis mm -hmm on if you believe in something, you want to do it, then you'll find out how motivated you are because it's going to be harder for you, because you're going to have to work harder, you won't be able to go to the pub like everyone else, you're going to have to sit in and mug this stuff up. That will tell you how motivated you are, but it's you that finds that out, not someone telling you. And that's but, the crucial thing. But here you are, you've got yeah. more than 30 honorary degrees. Yes. <laughs> Lord, me, you could just paper yeah. your walls with them. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Funny you say that. <laughs> <laughs> you've got a Michael Faraday me uh, yeah. medal, you're now in the House of Lords. Yeah. Are you what success looks like? No, I would like to think that we wouldn't be that simplistic about success. I mean, let me tell you a story. This is a slightly personal one, but given we're alone here, we're I'll share among it. friends. Get we're among friends. Um, when I first started my graduate work, um, not everyone was charitable because I had no science qualifications, and there was this particularly ochre Australian alpha male in the lab who was postdoc. Um, who kept telling me I was a square peg in a, a round hole. He won't mind me telling you this story, and I'll name names. He's called Ian Chubb, and he's chief advisor of the Australian government now. But he, knows, he knows this story, and he won't and mind me saying... And he apologised? No, we just tease each other, so he won't mind this at right. all. So I don't mind saying this at all. Um, anyway, so at the time, he told me I was a square peg in a round hole. He bullied me in a way that perhaps would be illegal now. He used to hit me on the head with paper rolls, squirt distilled water at me, and this sort of thing. 
Um, so the whole thing. He squirted water at Distilled you. Distilled water. You as have a postgraduate who is now the chief scientific advisor. Yeah, he's just like us. And they've got an issue with Julia Galliard. There we go. There we go. So anyway, so at the time, although I laughed at it now, obviously mm. this was distressing. What age what? were you? 22, 23. So anyway, and so I used to. I would never let him see me cry. I always go into the loo to cry, which is you know a good strategy. So but anyway, um, I applied for the senior scholarship at St Hugh's College, and amazingly, I got it after the first year. And the thrill with which I went into this guy, and slapped the letter down. Let, we had letters in those days. And slapped it down and said, you know, the thrill of showing, yeah. vindicating myself. But anyway, it should have been a very important and special and wonderful achievement if we're talking about success, because mm -hmm. I'd vindicated myself against someone who kept telling me I was rubbish. You know? mm -hmm. So I went out with my then boyfriend. We had a bottle of wine. I remember it cost four pounds, which was hugely Is expensive. It oh no, well, no, it was a myself. It was a very expensive <laughs> bottle. And, and we went out and sat outside in the grass, you know, and it was idyllic. And I just burst into tears again because, and this is the point of this story, the whole thing seemed so empty. You know, it was just mm -hmm. a blue ribbon, it was just a prize, it was just a, a thing, which in and of itself, yes, of course it was nice to get, but to think that with that comes happiness, comes fulfillment, comes everything, comes self-worth, no. And I think, I always remember that story as I think the guy in mm -hmm. question would, you know? That, yes, although it's very nice to be awarded things, at the end of the day, they are awards. They are, they're not about you. The things I value more is, people sticking by you, of being a good friend, you know, of striving against all the odds, overcoming financial or personal or medical difficulties. Those things, I think, are more achievements than chalking up endless prize. Although that's nice, of course, I, and I don't want to denigrate but, but, it, but, but the fact that I don't think you should substitute that. For but the fact there. that you weren't a scientist, mm. did that dog you? Not at all, no, because um, I myself, and I think the other good thing my parents gave me the confidence, you should be proud to be who you are, whatever that is. You're not a scientist or a woman or any of this. You're you. You're, you know, you're Kirsty. I'm Susan. You know, mm -hmm. You're you. And although you may do things, you don't define yourself by just one thing. You wouldn't just say, you're a broadcaster, that's all you are. You know, you're, I'm sure you're many, you know, you'd see yourself in many but, different ways. But when you decided to become a neuroscientist, mm -hmm. did you just say, I want to be a neuroscientist and whatever that entails? Or did you say, I want to be a neuroscientist because there is this thing I want no, to find out yeah, about or that, develop yeah. or change. I, I was just, I, in those days, and we were talking about this earlier, um, in those happy days when we got state grants for education, um, you didn't really think about I want to be a this or a that. You just did what really interested you. And what really fascinated me at that time was here was a way to frame the questions I'd asked or, or read about in Greek and in ancient philosophy. Suddenly I could see a way of testing that empirically with the brain. And that's what riveted me. And I didn't think I want to be a this or a that or I want to earn money or have status. No, I was just really fascinated by but, that, you know. And but did you say, why. I'm fascinated by the brain because I want to understand how left brain is different from right brain? Or did you have other goals? I mean, because obviously I'm going to come on to talk about yeah. things you've said more recently. But then when you were starting yeah, oh, out, okay. it's hard to remember what we didn't know about the no, brain no, that we exactly. do now. No, what, what fascinated me, and again, Rather than framing it as left brain, right brain, um, we did a dissection very early on. And you may have heard this story because I talk about it a lot of the human brain. And what happens is they wheel in these trolleys with sort of Tupperware buckets in formalin. Yeah? And so you're wearing surgical gloves because obviously it's a toxic substance that nonetheless you need because it preserves the brain for cutting up. I remember rolling up my sleeve and, and plunging my hand in the bucket and then holding in one hand a brain. Yeah? And I remember thinking if I wasn't wearing gloves and a bit got under my fingernail, would that be the bit that somebody loved with? 
Or would it be a memory? Or would it be a hope? Or would it be a ha- could you have the habit of biting your fingernails under your fingernail? You know, just genetically. I mean, just weird. So, I mean, just mind blowing. That's what fascinated. So I didn't have a very specific science question. I was just amazed that this sludgy thing that occupied the same universe as nasal hair or saliva or earwax or something you know, that it nonetheless, you know, seemed to be everything that encapsulated the individual, and that really. That's what, there's a more philosophical thing rather than a scientific question. But then you're holding a brain and of course there's a physical entity, but no two brains no, are the same. No, exactly. That's the whole point. Well, I think brains are similar, minds are not. Yeah? And for me, um, the, way, and the reason we use those two words is the mind is the personalization of the brain. And at the physical level, it's the way that the brain cell connections are unique to each person. Because even if you're a clone, that's an identical twin. When you're born, although you have a, a full complement of brain cells, it's the growth of the connections after birth that accounts for the growth of the brain. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you have the opportunities. You interact with the environment. They will shape and strengthen and um, so on, and atrophy. So you end up with unique patterns of, of brain cells. And that's what makes you different from your clone, your twin. But so as a neuroscientist, then, yeah. was, the, was the value of your work being able to inform neurosurgery and make it mm. better? Or intrinsically, you wanted just to understand the brain for its own sake. I mean, I wonder what, to what end you wanted yeah. to put your neuroscience. Sure. Neither. There's a middle way. So what I was working on was um, an unusual thing that my then boss, my supervisor, had discovered um, in the periphery that he thought might happen in the brain. And I won't get into too many, but it's a novel idea that this boring old enzyme has another job other than being a boring old enzyme. And I had to find out what it was doing in the brain. And for the three years of my thesis, what it came down to is it had a very important job to do in the very area, by chance, that is lost in Parkinson's disease. So I didn't wake up one morning thinking, I want to cure Parkinson's disease, or indeed Alzheimer's. It happened to be the mechanism, the process that I'd been studying, honed in, and actually I I learned, of all the areas of the brain, the areas of the brain this was relevant were the areas that are lost in neurodegenerative diseases. So that's what got me interested in Parkinson's and also Alzheimer's, which I've can talk forever about, which I'd love to mm. talk about. But that's what's really... So I didn't wake up saying, I'm going to cure Alzheimer's, I'm going to be a scientist. You don't wake up like that. You just let your curiosity and your enthusiasm follow what fate unfolds for you. And I find that the most wonderful privilege to have had to have been able to do that. But of course, it, since you did your thesis, which is a number of years ago... Well, that, a year or two ago, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> there, there, obviously, been, you know, there have been massive leap, leaps forward. And I wonder if we can do all the genetic mapping. The idea that you will know if you have got a predisposition to Parkinson's. How is that changing? Yeah. Or will that change our attitude to the brain and how we can, you know, is there anything we can do? Okay, so does, that, does that moral issue sure, concern you? Sure. Well, there's, very, there's so many things to unpack there. Yes. Yeah. Um, first, let's take the moral issue, because I find that there's any lawyers in the audience, I'm sure there may be. I think there's interesting debates to be had between neuroscientists and lawyers, actually. Um, Because when do you say someone is accountable for their crimes? And when do you say it's due to a faulty gene, a malfunctioning brain area, not taking your medication that morning? As happened in Sweden a while ago with, just happen to remember this, the assassination of a minister by someone who was suffering from schizophrenia. And it turned out he hadn't taken his medication, and that was used as his defense. Now, without going into those details, this is the kind of interesting Mm -hmm. debate neuroscience can have with lawyers. What is free will? Who has it? Do some people have it? Do Osama bin Laden not have it? Or do other people, do you let them off the hook? When do you let them off the hook? Hugely fascinating question. So that's one question. Uh, Then we come to the genetic issue. Bear in mind that 
a gene just triggers the manufacture of up to 30,000 different proteins. You don't have good housekeeper or being witty, or indeed, or indeed, a disease trapped inside one gene, with one or two very rare exceptions like Huntington's disease. On the whole, everything is polygenic. That is to say you have lots of genes working in ways together which people poorly understand. So it's like one of those um, Rube Goldberg machines, you know, where you start with one thing, you end up with something else, but through lots of steps. So although some people, and to their credit commendably, work on genes and the possibility of targeting genes and identifying genes, it's not an approach I myself do. That's not to say you know, it shouldn't be adopted. Um, if you take, for example, the gene that was discovered for cystic fibrosis in the 90s, we still do not have a therapy based on that gene to cure cystic fibrosis. So although it can be helpful, as all science is, if we're looking for the magic bullet, I myself have different approaches, but thankfully we have a broad church with many mm. scientists working at many different levels with many different techniques. But going back to and talking then on about mind change, I mean, mm. where you have not necessarily courted controversy, but where there has been controversy, <laughs> just a bit. Yeah, just a bit. has been around comments. And I want you just to set the record straight on this. Yeah. When you were talking about, and in fact, and we we're going to talk about your novel, mm. which also tackles this, mm -hmm. your new novel, uh, which you'll be signing tomorrow. Mm -hmm. um, what you're saying, it seems to me, from what I've read, mm. is that exposure, repeated exposure to the technology of social media and um, video games mm. could increase the chance of dementia. Not quite, no. So let me just set the record yes, straight. And then I want to talk about autism. Yeah, Let's okay. Do. So let me just say first, because obviously we won't have time to do all this in depth, on my website, www.susanbrinko.com, in the section on screen technologies, because of this very issue of people banging on that there's no evidence, there is evidence, and so I've put it on my website. There's about 200 peer-reviewed science journals showing this. Yeah? They're showing so, which? Oh, showing a whole range of different findings. There's no black or white answer to something, but there's some looking at uh, the effects of social media, there's things looking at video gaming, there's a whole range of different things which are there on my website as a reading list, so you can make up your own mind. Now, it may be, and rightly, this is not exhaustive, it's not conclusive, that's the way science is, it never is conclusive, it's never exhaustive. But what I'm, I guess, irritated with my critics is they're of course entitled to their own opinions, they are not entitled to their own facts. And to say there's no evidence is just not true, because there is, and it's on the website. So that's the first thing. And then um, the second thing with well, autism. Let, let's yeah. talk about autism, because you also say that mm. exposure to social media and exposure to repeated mm. uh, you know, computer in, you know, interface, whatever, mm. can lead to autism. Uh, well, OK. What I have said is there's not quite that. And again, I don't blame the media, because clearly people want to simplify. So I'm not whinging yep. as academics yep. tend to do. Of course not, but it's very nice to have the chance to set it straight. There are some known facts, and let me just say, say some facts, and in my talk tomorrow I'll be mentioning these. Um, the first is that people with autistic spectrum disorder, and I'm not just autism because there's a whole range of, of issues where people have problems with impairment, do feel very comfortable and can work very well in the cyber world as opposed to the real world. Yep. And indeed, if you look on uh, the charities for autism, they will actually suggest various websites for people. And certainly there's the ECHOES project, for example, which has done um, very beneficial effects mm. for people with autism using. Uh, mm. So that does beg the question, why? Because it is the case. What, why is it that people have problems with empathy, as they do? Why do they feel comfortable with the screen? Could it be that those skills are not required when you do that? So could it therefore be that for people who are obsessively using that medium, 
they may themselves be developing or not developing the appropriate empathy. Now, one experiment, and there's many different things, but let me just say one. There was a recording recently where you did EEGs, um, you know, put, um, recorded brainwaves from people. And uh, one test for lack of empathy is you show someone something like a table, and then you show them something like a face. And in the normal subjects, you'll have a much more marked EEG response when you see a face as when you see a table. People have problems with empathy who would fall within the autistic spectrum. The pattern will be the same to both a table and a face. People who play excessive video games, guess what? They have the same similarity in recognizing a table and a face. You don't have that. So, but, the, but you have not. I mean, one of the criticisms leveled mm -hmm. at you is that you have referred to other people's research, but you haven't carried out research in this yourself. Okay, well, that's a separate. So let's keep the brick bats one by one, right? So that's the first thing. And again, you can look and see that what I'm nuancing here is there is some kind of link between problems of, in, of empathy mm -hmm. and the screen technologies. So some kind of, that's fine. Okay, so back my own research, fine. Yeah. Okay, now, whoever said that, clearly themselves doesn't really understand science without sounding too rude. Because all of us have a particular set of skills mm -hmm. and range. In my case, it's more cellular neurochemical work. And just to set the record straight without showing off, I have published over 200 papers on the website. You can yeah. look them up. And many covering dopamine, mechanisms of addiction, environmental enrichment, neuroscience and education, mm -hmm. and so on. So I can unflinchingly defend that and say, clearly I have. Now, I think what they really want is some catch-all, smoking gun, single experiment mm -hmm. that proves um, computers are bad for the mm -hmm. brain. Now, I would say back to them, fine, tell me what to do. There's no such experiment. It's like saying to Lovelock, prove climate change in one paper. Mm -hmm. You just couldn't. And, and I think that... To do them justice, I don't want to sound hostile, it shows people don't truly understand mm. the difference between a hypothesis for a paper, a very specific idea, mm. yeah, or a general concept like mm. climate change, you know, that but, then is embraces lots of different questions. But the reason I'm mentioning this is because mm. this whole thing is, the whole idea of this event as well is about, mm. you know, you're overcoming adversity and that has also to do with criticism. Sure. Yeah. And I think it's very interesting because there's two things about that, mm. which is firstly, if you are parents mm -hmm. of a child on the autistic spectrum mm -hmm. and that child feels comfortable and secure mm -hmm. in front of a computer screen mm -hmm. i suppose what the concern might be that there's an implied criticism sure well, there's you can, not you can I don't, is there anyone who that applies to of course not of course not yep. because no it's certainly not i'm just trying to show and to i mean I don't shoot the messenger all i'm doing you know is showing yeah. people what's out there and what we're finding out and in terms of criticism i truly don't mind that because in science that's, what, that's the warp and waft mm. of our, of our mm. lives. You know, when you submit a paper, I've never submitted of my 200 papers anything that says this is the most brilliant paper ever published straight away. Mm -hmm. There's always, always, always criticism. Yeah. Also, always. So, so yeah. Can I just finish that yeah. point? Um, so I don't mind that because that is how you progress. And I don't know of anyone who said anything new or different or controversial that doesn't have criticism. It's a healthy, normal challenge. You know, what I do object to is when it's personalised or irrelevant. Yeah. That's, that's where it becomes, I think, demeaning to the people that say it, you know, rather than trying to find the truth. It's when it's done to try and be clever or spiteful. The other, the, let's say the other thing, because this is, yeah. I think, probably mm. equally worrying, or worrying for parents of mm. children that are not on the autistic spectrum. For example, mm. if you are saying that in some cases, and of course it's hard to determine which cases these are, mm. excessive um, FaceTime, not FaceTime, time screen time, time, screen time. time so mm. I just showed you how technophobe I am. Yeah. Time, might lead to those tendencies with lack of empathy that display within children with the autistic spectrum. Mm -hmm. Are you saying then that really 
appearance of responsibility because that could happen, but it's a bit random and you don't know who's likely to, to maybe become less empathetic because they're using this, because that is quite explosive, isn't it? No, I'm not saying that, but by the same token, if you're a parent, wouldn't you want to know what work has been done? I mean, most parents want the best for their kids and they want to know the research that's out there, as well as autism. One could talk easily the same, perhaps you will in a second, yeah. about attention deficit disorder, yeah. for example. Well, for example. Yeah. So you know, I think that one can't go la, la, la and pretend this research is not there. But I think rather than thinking this is criticism, it's not. It's all of us trying to find out the truth. And, know, and it's not helpful if people just pretend it's not the case or just try and do personal you, breakbacks. It's more we're trying to talk about this together. if you're an eminent together. scientist... Mm as you are, mm -hmm. then obviously what you say carries weight. Mm -hmm. It must do. Mm -hmm. So as a kind of rule of thumb then, what would you say to parents or guardians, whatever, mm -hmm. who let their children <coughs> sit in front of the screen for more than an hour a day? Okay, so I would say it depends what they do with the other things. Now, um, the American Psychiatric Association has said two hours, but that's, that's just a rule. That's just sort of, to my mind, that's not very helpful because it depends on the child, the age, the ability, the culture, mm -hmm. your, what you want your kids to be, which is another question, incidentally, mm -hmm. what kind of people do you want them to be? So I would never be prescriptive in, in that way. Yeah? What I would say is that surely we should be thinking of ways altogether in which we can shape an environment that brings out the best in people, whatever that is, whatever that is. Yeah? And we have to decide, first of all, what do we want your kids, you know, what do you want your children to be? What kind of mm -hmm. talents and or, or, or traits do you want them to have? Because until we work that out, we can't really deliver it. But I do find it sad, I have to say, mm. when um, instead of you know, climbing a tree or feeling the sun on their face or giving someone a hug, um, kids are, are stuck in front of the screen. For example, there was one very moving email I had from someone in Australia saying uh, he took his kids, he said he forced them. You know, it was a, they negotiated, and finally they went for a walk in the Yarra Valley, you know, near Melbourne. Lots of nice wine. Yeah, yeah. He said they went for a walk, and um, he said he heard them. Eventually, they were kind of on their bikes and laughing and giggling like kids do. And he said that sound is music to the ears of a parent. You're one, mm -hmm. yeah. And he said, I never hear that when they're sitting in front of a screen. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So that I mean, it's just sometimes a little anecdote like that. I think just says a lot. You know? So. Um, that's an anecdote, but where you have been able to express yourself perhaps mm -hmm. uh, more openly about this is in fiction, and you've yes. taken your first step into fiction where you very clearly, the clear message from this book <laughs> is that technology rots your head. No, no, not quite, no. <laughs> no, let's take it back. No, no, not to. Not quite, no, no. But, but technology leads no. to problems in society. No, no, okay, so two things. One is the technology is 100 years from now, so it's not right right now. Yeah, it's but, yeah. taking it to very extremes, as you're allowed to do if you're writing fiction, and it's 100 years from now. You're allowed to do things like that. So that's the first thing. But secondly... But you refer back to the great-grandfathers and so forth yes, of I do. two of your protagonists yeah, and how who end happened. up spending more and more time in front of the computer. They did, they did, they did. So this is just one scenario, but you're forgetting there's the other group, the neo-pures. And these were a, a group that were developed as the antithesis to these, I call them the others, these people that lived in a sort of cyber bubble with no past, no present, no future, no relationships, no nothing other than endless, remorseless fun. Can you imagine anything more terrible than just endless fun, hour after hour of fun? Yeah. Um, these other people have no fun at all. They are um, very cerebral, very theoretical. The hero is a neuroscientist with views on the brain similar to myself, of course. You know, so. There you go, Fred. He's called Fred, so he's thinly disguised as a man. He, um, he's, he's um, but nonetheless, 
that is an equally dystopic, equally unfortunate, equally undesirable. So I'm not just saying that technology can make you into sort of hedonistic idiots. Mm -hmm. In fact, I'm also saying what, what technology unfettered can do can perhaps so warp or change the kind mm. of society you live in that we need to think about it. So it's really the two extremes. It's not just an apology you know, for screen technologies. Mm. It's more trying to so, show two extremes. But in, in terms future. of your own brain, was it liberating to write fiction? It was great fun because you didn't have to look anything up. So instead of the reading list that you will find on the website, which is uh, the basis of a book I'm currently writing called Mind Change, which is a non-fiction book to be published by Random House next year. Um, this was just fun. You just go like this. Oh, I think I'll make her pregnant. No, I think I'll kill her. No, I think I'll... Yeah, <laughs> but it's true what they say, that the characters kind of take over. You know, and you know, after a while, it is like just letting them do their own thing and you're just slavishly mm -hmm. following behind. But why it was liberating, hugely liberating, because initially it's quite scary because you just have the screen and you can be any time, any place, anywhere. It sounds like Martini, anything. You can do. See, she's on the screen. Look what problems it's given her on the screen. Yeah, you can do anything. And, and it's that freedom, that absolute unfettered freedom that's scary, but it can be huge fun, as I'm sure many people... But, I mean, you're, I mean you, you've, you've largely kind of surfed, you know, you've, you've, had, you've had good press and so forth. Do, do you worry about critics, literary criticism? Um, what's about the worrying? You know, the thing is that if you put your head above the parapet, if you say something different or unusual... Right, Lil Rangi, of course, of course people are going to, to be critical. You know, that's not to say it's not upsetting. It'd be lovely if everyone thought everything was great. Mm -hmm. But what I don't do is read things slavish. I certainly don't read the blogosphere. I don't mm -hmm. go on Twitter or social media. Why? Because it just makes you feel miserable. You know, because inevitably the default seems to be to be unpleasant to people. It's like a trip advisor for the head. So yeah, yeah, so why, why do it? You know, so it's fine, but, um, but, that's, know, but that's it's not in the your, sort of thing that would concern me. But that's in your yeah. kind of, if I might say, kind of, not quite amateur area, but you know, fiction oh, is okay, not so, your fiction. No, this is, is not, not my day job. Exactly. No, but when you've been criticised in the day job, and, and there's this, this big thing that happened, I can't even remember when it happened, in 2010, oh, yeah. when you left the director of the Royal Institution, it was, or Institute. No, I didn't quite leave it. I was sort of, uh, the post was made redundant, is the formal. But why? Thing. Because there's no money? or? Okay, I have to be careful here, because if you followed it at the time, no. I did sign a legal agreement that I wouldn't talk specifically about the terms and conditions of my departure. So I can only talk in general yeah. terms, much was as it, I would adore it. Was it misreported? Because I'm just trying of to get... Course, of what, course. What the, again, yeah. I'm trying to get this sense of where of you course unfairly... Of misreported. Yeah. Where you unfairly uh, treated, uh, did you feel... Yeah. I was unfairly treated by the press, I can say that certainly, yeah. because uh, there was one saying, you know, Susan Greenfield should have been sacked, and here was someone who didn't know me, didn't know what was happening, didn't understand the situation, but it made a good headline, you know, of course. And when you read that and you can't defend yourself, because you're legally gagged, you know, it is very hard. Um, was you know, it an upsetting time? Thing, it's not fair, it's not fair. Was it an know? upsetting time? Because you seem so in command and in control. Well, that's kind. It'd be silly to say it wasn't provoked, but so there's some interesting things here. There was one terrible time, this was the Nadia, and I, perhaps you've had times like this, when I remember it really clear, it was the morning of the 24th of December, therefore Christmas Eve, 2009, and I'd just had the last talk, I'll just say that, with someone at the hour. And I put the phone down, and I just felt I was staring into the abyss, into this black... Have you ever had that? You just stare, and you think, I won't say the rude words that I want to say, but you say these rude words, you know? And you think, ah, yeah, dot, dot, dot. Mm. And I was just staring there, thinking, what, what's going to happen? What am I going to do? And it being Christmas, suddenly the doorbell goes, and it's my mum and dad and brother, hello, happy Christmas, how are you? you know? And it's a tradition in my family at that time, 
on the afternoon, we'd go to the matinee pant pantomime in Oxford, or, or a show, as my mum no, would call it. No, you don't. So we went to see Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, right? So we're sitting in the new theatre of Oxford watching Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, and Dad's going, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, we love you. And I'm thinking, help. <laughs> I didn't, how am I going to tell them? You know, what am I going to And that, that was the idea. That was the blackest time when I was going to have to tell my family. They were so buoyed up with Christmas. They were singing along with Toot Sweets and Chitty Chitty Bang, all those things, you know? And I just didn't know. And I was just staring into the abyss. That was the worst. But without sounding corny, and it's true that I know I'd done nothing wrong. Mm. I'd, done, I'd truly done mm. nothing wrong. I hadn't had my hands in the till. I could mm. look myself mm. in the mirror, despite when well, I can't see too much detail, despite what was, mm. rumors were, I knew I'd done nothing wrong. And my mates stood by me, you know, and the people, that, so even people that were professional colleagues rather than just real mates, they stood by me too. And that really gives you a mm -hmm. sense, A, of who you appreciate, mm -hmm. yeah? And also, when you are faced with adversity like that, it shows you who your friends are, because others, of course, mm. melted like the mm. snow in springtime. You learn who your friends are, um, and you learn that you can cope. You do come out the other end. And in fact, as it's turned out, things have worked out really well in a way perhaps they wouldn't have. I took a different path than if I'd stayed completely there. You know? So in retrospect, it was a life-changing experience. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't wish it on people. Of course not. But to say it was all bad, I was devastated, I could No, of course not, because... A, my conscience was clear, and also I had very good friends to support me and families who supported me. Yeah. Looking at your own brain... Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, you're now 62. 63 soon, next year. Yeah. Do you think you're... What, what changes? I mean, it must be really weird to be an expert in the brain and think of yourself and go, mm, it's taking me a bit longer to think of that word. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's never been a problem. There's okay. <laughs> always been too many, actually. And, uh, and I'm so used to people telling me I talk too fast and so on that, you know, it's just become such a, you know, it's just but a do you, do, you, do, you, do you feel a sense, do you do things differently? I mean, um, I'm not saying in terms of degeneratively. No, no, I'm just what's very do interesting, and let me widen this in more general because people might find this interesting. Um, there's, when you're developing, there's something called, you may have heard the term fluid intelligence, mm -hmm. which peaks in your teenage time and then starts to decay. That's where you process things very quickly. So we all know that a young person can learn things very quickly. They can learn a poem very quickly, more than perhaps the older people mm -hmm. would learn. That tails off in favor of something called crystalline intelligence. And I like the concept of a crystal because it does imply sort of lattice. And I think of a lattice of brain cell networks, literal networks, where you start to see one thing in terms of something else, so you understand something. So the story I love to tell is of my little brother, who I bullied horribly, tortured him. Um, when he was three and I was 16, and I forced him Jeez. to... Yeah, I forced him to learn Shakespeare. I thought Shakespeare. you were going to say when you were nine and he no, was no, like, no, 16. No, 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 I forced him to learn Shakespeare. That was very funny. So he would come on and say, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day. Anyway, the whole point of this rather unsavory story is that um, it goes on, as you'll know, um, out, out, brief, candle, life is but a poor player, mm. which, of course, he learned. And had you said to him, do you understand that? Do you understand? Mm. He learned it quickly. He'd have said something like, well, I have a candle on my birthday cake, mm. and I blow it out. He couldn't have said, well, actually, it's a metaphor for death. Of course mm. not, it was only three. Mm. So the whole point is that you go from the fluid to the crystalline. So although you might be slower processing it, it's because you're putting it against the checks and balances of what's yeah. there already. So you're truly understanding it. And I think the more you embed something in a context, the more you understand it, rather than it being isolated fact, which then is one mm -hmm. of the reasons I'm worried about learning mm -hmm. from the screen, mm -hmm. where facts are just in and of themselves. They're not, no one joins up the dots, so you can't really understand them. You might be able to say, yuck, or wow, or regurgitate mm -hmm. them. But joining them up, relating one thing to another, 
That's the skill. That's what education is about. That's what knowledge is as opposed to information. And mm -hmm. that comes the more you age. And so unless you are a victim of the devastating condition of dementia, mm -hmm. you just get better and better. You get, this is why wisdom is very rarely attributed to a child or a mm -hmm. child. You never say this wise child protege. Mm -hmm. You will say a wise older person. And that's mm -hmm. because you have the lifetime to embed all those mm -hmm. experiences and events and relate one to another and so on. And I think that is one of the benefits of Mm -hmm. as the brain matures, and I'll say matures rather than ages. Mm -hmm. yeah. the, um, I do want to take questions in the audience, but just the, the, the whole idea that a generation of young women probably went into the sciences because of you. <laughs> make it sound like something bad. <laughs> no, no, not enough, frankly. Yeah, no, yeah. Not mm -hmm. enough. I mean, yeah. that's the issue, isn't it? I mean, yeah. how much are you a prostatizer for? Oh, very for much. Okay, so um, what I'm a proselytizer for is people reaching their true potential yeah. and not being put off by prejudices. Yeah. Yeah? I don't want to go around zealously recruiting people to do science if they would rather do pottery. So, you know, that's, you know, why? Yeah. But more, I, I think it's sad when people are limited by other people telling them they're not good enough or it's not right for them and so on, because I had that from this Australian and I know what that feels like. Yeah. God, I hope he's paid a lot of He has, I don't know. In fact, if you uh, want to no. email him after the show. <laughs> no. He won't mind, actually. He'll find it very funny, I think. Let's ask questions from uh, the audience in the last yeah. few years. Yes, right down the front here. Question there first, and then secondly, one over this side where the microphones are. Let's take your question first. Thank you very much for your very interesting talk. Um, would you agree that in terms of contemporary science, there is a fundamental problem that there are too many specialisms? If one imagines the tree of scientific knowledge mm -hmm. by way of a single large tree with lots of leaves where each leaf mm -hmm. represents an active actual specialism, how is it possible for the ever-expanding tree mm -hmm. with ever-increasing numbers of leaves to allow people to find a relationship between leaves in a neighborhood of leaves mm. and over the tree as a whole? Also, what are your views on epigenetics? Do you think it exists in a true form of true inheritance? And uh, you've got to be careful in terms of implying that uh, people on the autistic spectrum disorder uh, lack empathy. You've got to be more uh, careful on that one. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, I'll take your last comment first, which is a comment rather than a question, and I take that on board, and I apologise if I've seemed offensive, but you have to realise that the, the, when you communicate things, that it's a blunt instrument, and sometimes it can come across much more simplistically mm -hmm. um, than I imply. But do look at my reading list on the back, and that, mm -hmm. that might be helpful. Um, secondly, the branches of science... I think the tree analogy is good and not seeing the wood for the trees. That's, that's, a, that's a good point. Um, I think the biggest problem is not so much that. It's now um, people are, because they're nervous about getting grants and therefore of being wrong, because if you're not right and you don't publish, you won't get grants, mm. that things have moved in the last 10 years. So there's now a rather unfortunate phrase called bias-free research, B-I-A-S, free research. Um, this means you don't have a hypothesis, right? This means you will apply whatever technique you happen to be proficient at, and there's many, yeah, very powerful techniques. Um, and um, you'll have then, let's take Alzheimer's to the area I know, you'll have a profile from an Alzheimer patient of a certain load of genes or a certain load of proteins, and then you'll have one from a non-Alzheimer patient. And what does that mean? What does it mean? Unless you're driven by a hypothesis or a question or a theory, formidable, and awesome though the data is, spectacular the techniques are, uh, what does it mean? You know, and so I think the problem with science is not so much that we're specializing because um, clearly if you're actually doing experiments, you can't be good at brain scanning and at genetics and at molecular bio, you know, and yeah. at um, psychology, you can't. You know, but you do have a team 
And the, the trick around that is you have a multidisciplinary team, and the most exciting research is multidisciplinary. But what I do fear, and what is our fault, and what we should be doing, is bringing back the old um, popper idea of a falsifiable hypothesis, where you have a theory and test it. You also asked about epigenetics? I don't really have much to say about epigenetics. I'm sorry. I right. can't really. Okay. Any okay, question up the back, and then the microphone here to the young woman with dark hair. Hello. Hi, where are you? Up there. Oh, yeah, hi. Speaking as a generalist, mm. um, is, there a, uh, is there a concern about um, rather than uh, using the diagnoses and uh, were problems that need... I can't even ask the question properly. It's yeah. fine. I'm a generalist. I'm a GP. And I yeah. should be able to speak better than that, but that's, it. that's yeah. my brain. As long as you can write the prescriptions. Yeah. <laughs> just, just, just. What I want to ask is that sometimes we give people labels mm -hmm. in diagnosing. Mm -hmm. And actually, the, the, the real problem is being able to come up with a management. So you said something where you can't treat them. Cystic fibrosis, we mm. can't manage, but we can't cure. Yeah. Uh, dyslexia, um, certainly autism. If you give somebody a label, that can actually reduce, potentially, their opportunities and their mm -hmm. prospects because they've got that label. Mm -hmm. And is there a benefit of not looking at the label, but really looking mm -hmm. at the management? Mm. Um, and of course, yeah. Sometimes uh, it's no triumph, no disaster mm -hmm. with um, certain problems that people have to live yeah. with. Thank you. No, I, I take that as a clinical perspective and I would applaud that. Um, however, if you're a basic scientist and you're trying to find, as in my case, the one I know most about is Alzheimer's disease, you know, I really do feel with confidence there is a better way of treating that. And I, frankly, I don't flinch from using the label neurodegeneration or Alzheimer's because I need to describe the problem that I'm tackling. That's not to say you shouldn't, in a societal context, in a clinical context, treat the individual as the whole individual mm. in the round as what they are. And I couldn't agree with you more. But as a basic scientist, I'm sorry I have to use labels because that's what I'm trying to cure. Yes, I'm yeah, moving in the middle row. Yeah. Hi, um, I just wanted to bring it back to Fred Hi. Hood for a minute, um, yeah. who this event is for. Mm. Uh, he had a creative and very fun-loving side that sometimes came to clash with an intellectual or professional side, where he was wanting to achieve, and I think had a fear of not having an, made achievements in his life. And I want to come back to that moment where you said you felt empty after you got the scholarship. Sure. Mm. And I wondered how it is that you found what process you went through to find an identity once you realize that actually achievements may not be the way in which you want to sure. change your life. Yeah, I think I always, I always realized that from the outset, again, because of my, my mum and dad, um, because socioeconomically they were very modest. Um, I learned that you didn't have to have the swanky car or you know, lots of money or the foreign holidays in order to identify or express yourself. So I'd always known that anyway. You know? So the fact that I was you know, given appropriate trophies and, and prizes, was very nice, but I'd, I'd never set out thinking this is, if I do this, I'm going to impress everyone. If I do this, it'll mean I'm a better person. Mm. I never, ever, ever thought that. My mum would never have let me get away with that yeah. kind of logic, ever. Yeah. Gentleman over there, thank you. Um, do you think that the criteria and methods for university entrance are satisfactory, and if not, how could they be improved? Sure, I think um, it's unfortunate. I will be controversial now and stick my neck out here. I think a target of 50% going to university, 
I think is perhaps misguided because, um, first of all, what happens to the other 50%? In the old days, when it was a much smaller percentage, it was okay to be in the majority, but now if you're one of the 50% who hasn't got this golden path, how are you going to feel about yourself? And we're talking about people coming to terms and being who they are. I think that's right. I think also the spectrum of skills society needs are not necessarily best met by giving people a three-year academic course. That's another thing. Um, thirdly, my own brother, for example, didn't go to university, and he's very brilliant at computers. That's it, yeah. Thirdly, I think we could think of, if we're going to use student loan money, we could use it in more imaginative ways. For example, <laughs> well, yeah, for example um, some of it, say, I'm sure in the audience there might be some young people here who are very tech-savvy, who are brilliant on computers, but who are not academic, my own brother being an example of that. Uh, but however, such a person, if they wanted to exploit and commercialize their skill, they wouldn't have, they wouldn't know about business plans, they wouldn't know about um, you know, how you set up a company and so on. The baby boomers may do. The baby boomers who are retired, who are now just playing golf or Sudoku or doing something like that. Why not take a baby boomer who still feels worthwhile and who's got brilliant entrepreneurial experience and skills, pair them with a tech-savvy younger person and fund them to spin out a company. And if it does well, if it does well, then you pay the exchequer back, rather like you're going to pay your student loan back. And I'm sure they'd get much more money back that way than they will from people earning 30,000 a year in 50 years' time. You know? So oh. I, that's what I would like to see, those kinds of, those kinds of um, schemes, much wider, more diverse, um, imaginative ways in which we can bring out the best in young people. And I think just saying one size fits all at university is, is bad for society and bad for them, bad for us. On that question yeah. of uh, baby boomers and retirees, mm -hmm. if the brain you think is as good, except if there's actually a degenerative mm -hmm. condition, um, and if you, we reach wisdom at a certain age, why on earth is anyone retiring at all? Well, exactly. Now, I'm sure that's what Cameron's going to latch on to very soon. <laughs> uh, with the pension age, right? Now, it's only a matter of time before they start saying this. Yeah. Yes, young women up at the back. Hi. Um, Hi. Uh, just obviously, you've been stating, especially in your novel, your fiction one, about how technology is potentially having a negative impact in many respects. Mm -hmm. I was just kind of wondering what your verdict was on, like, wearable technology and apps, because obviously they uh, guys developed an app that can track your movement, your sociability, and look at post-traumatic stress disorder and pick up the warning signs for it. And I was just wondering, kind of, what your views on those were. Oh, there's wonderful benefits. You know, um, for example, people have got now mobiles where people with diabetes can monitor their glucose levels, where you can look at signs of heart attacks. There's wonderful. You know, obviously, um, and I've never said. Let's turn the clock back. I've never, I've just said, let's harness this technology because it is so formidable and it is so mm -hmm. powerful. And just sleeping into, sleepwalking into it is not doing anyone a service. And we should rather be thinking imaginatively about how we can use it and how we can maximize the use of it. Yes, gentlemen. Uh, were the uh, Americans misguided to try and extradite Gary McKinnon rather than give him a job? Oh, <laughs> well, obviously I'm not. Um, yeah, clearly that takes up the gentleman's point at the back. You are a politician now. You're a But I'm not. I'm a crossbencher. So anyway, so free. still yes, yes. Anyway, um, but no, this, that actually picks up the the good doctor's point at the back about people being valued for what they are rather than given labels. And um, perhaps that might well apply to, to McKinnon that one should have thought of ways in which his talents could have been harnessed rather than penalised. Yes, young woman there. Why do you think so many women self-select out of careers in science after they've done their undergraduate okay. studies? Yeah, thank you for that. I think that's a really good question. And I can answer that with some 
hard evidence because um, in 2002, I know it's a long time ago now, Patricia Hewitt asked me to do a report on the retention and recruitment of women in science. It was called Set Fair, Science, Engineering, mm. Technology. And uh, I did consult a lot. and We wrote this chunky report. And just as an aside, I learned a hard lesson, which you put a lot of effort into writing those reports. <laughs> And nothing happens. You know, it's a bit like, it's a bit like um, the Kurt Vonnegut novel where the whole of Earth evolves to develop a little widget for a spaceship. You, know, you do a whole report so that she can just answer one question in the Commons. You know, so. Anyway, that's a side. But nonetheless, the report is there. You can download it. And what we learned then, and things haven't changed that much, is that um, uh, in biomedical sciences, it's about 50-50 in teenage, early 20s. The physical sciences, it was 90-10. What is depressing is the physical sciences stay at 90-10, obviously 90% men, right? Mm. But as you get into the mid-20s, late 30s, it scissors out for biomedical sciences, mm. again, to be 90-10. Why is this? Well, one of the reasons that we thought and emerged was, of course, that's the childbearing years. Yeah. And for those of you who are not familiar with public sector science careers, what happens is you do your PhD, and then you have traditionally two, say, two-year postdoctoral periods, but this is on fixed contracts where you and really you have to publish you have, you to have to publish you have to slog your guts out because that's where you're proving yourself as independent of your supervisor as really establishing yourself that is precisely the time of course that most young women will start to think about having a family you therefore have a choice do you delay having a child beyond your biological optimum until you have tenure in your mid-30s might be too late do you give up yeah, a but then, there's, but then, yeah. th then there's a chance that actually you're going for tenure and you're 33 and you haven't yeah. had kids and they're going, well, no, we're not allowed to say this at no. the interview, but guess what? Well, that's what? another, that's mm. another. No, but then, let me finish this. So you have that, or you come back in a junior capacity. So what we identified as the problem, why it's hard for women to self-select, is primarily one of how do they cope with the biological and psychological and societal you know, obvious agenda for wanting kids, and at the same time, um, being mm. in the white-hot competition. Now, what we suggested as a way of doing this was, you may have heard of the Daphne Jackson Fund. That's a, a fund that only funds one or two women. But this is a fund um, that actually ring-fences money for so-called returners. Um, now, this could mm. be a man if he's had primary childcare mm. or as a widow or something. So it's not a sex thing. It's more, have you had primary childcare such that for a year or two you have not been producing in your mm. research because you have to go into the lab. In which case, here's money, let's compete with each other, at least the playing field level, and you won't automatically get money, let's say it's 50% mm. or 30%, but you'll have two years money to get yourself back. Now, this is what we suggested, and they granted a million pounds, and that was it. Which sounds a lot, but that would fund about three women in the whole thing, yeah, for doing three. So, in answer to you, I think the problem, and, I know, and I one of my postdocs, um, who's now a lecturer, who has two kids, She's run ragged. She's run by, you know, the, the crash Stick them you. in front of the computer screen. They'll be yeah. fine. No, she's run ragged, not the kids. Yeah. Yeah. So they find you. These crashes find you if it gets to one minute past five. I know, it's unbelievable. So, so there you are, splitting the atom, discovering the meaning of life, and suddenly, oh, no, crashes go, you know? I mean, it's just mentality is so hard for them. Final question from a baby boomer. <laughs> Thank you, Councillor. <laughs> um, I've always been interested in distinguishing distinguished, uh, the difference between mind and personality. Mm -hmm. Is there such a thing? And can one influence the other? You've talked about yes. this evening about mind. Yes. And I'm interested in personality. Okay, I, does this affect TV presenters as well? Oh, well, <laughs> no, they're, they're from Mars anyway. Then. Um, no, I think that um, 
I think what I often like to use is obviously if you have different words for something, then there usually is a reason for that. I like to apply the desert island test. Yeah? Say you're on a desert island, um, you'd still have a mind, well, at least initially. You know, you'd still um, be aware of things. You'd still interpret the world in a certain way. You'd still be responding to things um, in the sense of having a personal view of the world. Would you have a personality? Well, no, because you need someone else to appreciate your personality. A personality is something that arises from interaction or scenarios with others. How could you have a personality alone on a desert island? I think that would be harder. So I think, but this is often semantics. I mean, yeah, so it's an interesting it's thing. Interesting, it's interesting, isn't good. it? Yeah. yeah. But my own view of identity, which is something I have written about, if you regard that sense, that, that does require a context that the mind does not require. The mind, you can wake up in the morning just like your mind's functioning. In order for that personality, that identity to be expressed, it needs to be expressed in an interrelationship. Really? Oh, well, I'm just suggesting. I'm just I suggesting. Because they're saying if you're no, on the desert island, about... the way you respond to your plight surely would have something to do with your personality. So therefore, if you're an optimistic person, you'd be looking for the boat on the horizon. Mm -hmm. If you were a depressed, depressed person, you would just slit your wrist with a coconut. Yeah. <laughs> well, it depends how you define personality. Oh, okay. yes. It's half past seven. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, to Susan Weaver, thank you very much thank you. indeed. This session, as I say, was sponsored by Walter Scott, for whom Frederick uh, Hood worked. And indeed, each year, that's John McCarthy and now Susan, each year this event will commemorate Frederick. And now Frederick's brother is going to make an award to Susan. Oh. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. We have to explain because you're going to have to open it and explain. explain. <laughs> Do you explain um, without a microphone? Just explain what it is, and I'll get your microphone. Oh, fine. Shout. Draw my microphone. No, hang on. Uh, okay. oh. First of all, I just like, on behalf of my mother, Mrs. Meyerhood, who's here, and the rest of our family, um, to thank the International Book Festival, to thank Roger Nesbitt and Jane Henderson of Walter Scott, and to thank you all for being here, and to thank Susan for this wonderful, what has become this year, now a tradition. Um, what we have here for you, Professor, do you prefer okay. Professor or Baroness? I'll call me Susan. Susan. <laughs> <laughs> I like yeah. Professor. Well, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> have something to do with the head. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, however, unfettered use, I don't think yeah. will rot your brain. Mm -hmm. It's more about form than substance. <laughs> Can you guess what it is? I think the, the container looks like it, so. <laughs> Yeah, I'll have to let, let everyone it, see it. It's a hat. Yeah. Ah, let's see it. Let's open it. Let's open it. And if the hat fits. No, no, and there's a, there's a, it needs a professor to open this box. It does. I've never had such a grand hat. And hat boxes. Mm. Wow. Oh, how lovely. Shall I put it on? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much indeed. <laughs> oh, I love it. Those are the shorts. I love it. It looks very good. You should dinky it down. It's great. More podcasts, videos, and live recordings of author events can be found at www.edbookfest.co.uk.